listening to BuddhistGeeks.com. February 5th, 2007, Episode 5, Phil Stanley, We're Not the Cheerleaders of Buddhism. In this episode, Phil Stanley discusses Buddhist lifestyles in the West and how our approach and practice differs from traditional Eastern practitioners. He addresses our relationships to retreats and monasticism as well as the difficulties Westerners face in finding a livelihood that supports practice. Phil also discusses controversy over what constitutes a legitimate lineage and teacher. This is part two of a three-part series. If you're interested in sponsoring our podcast, please visit www.buddhistgeeks.com forward slash advertise. What lifestyles of Buddhist practice have emerged here in the West or will emerge? Mm -hmm. Because it seems as though we approach practice differently, not necessarily fundamentally, but Mm -hmm. in different ways than maybe has happened in the past in Mm -hmm. traditional Mm -hmm. Asian Buddhism. So what things have you noticed in, in terms of lifestyles? And maybe you could... If you mentioned again those three paradigms that Reggie Ray uses, because that's I think a very helpful reference. Right. Well, the the reference point here is that uh, the classic early Western understanding of of the paradigms in Buddhist uh, for Buddhists uh, were a twofold. One was the laity and the monastic community, and the laity supported the monastic community and uh, you know giving donations to support them getting good rebirth you know getting good merit that affords them good rebirths in their future life and and the monks for their part are supposed to um, there are a number of things they do uh, I, you know ideally they're getting realized um, but uh, more uh, support to getting realized they they learn text they preserve text they practice and meditate they lead virtuous lives they accumulate merit themselves they teach the lay people and so forth so you have this sort of uh, simple two-pole model um, Reggie's work uh, Buddhist Saints in India was useful in pointing out that there are uh, always monks are in fact in time of the Buddha it's quite clear that there were lay people doing this too really pursuing realization itself and um, often this involved uh, intensive practice which uh, monastic life didn't necessarily uh, support as much as they would like so they would go off whether that's caves or mountains or whatever I mean uh, forests and in India going to the forest in that time day and age was a dangerous thing <laughs> you know they, they had a real idea that there was the village and the you know civilized quote civilized areas and in the forest you know it was dangerous so um, this were courageous and, and determined individuals going off to practice um, so there is this idea that um, some people who want to get realized will have to do things that don't quite fit into normal social social structures and, and go off. In the West, uh, we clearly, the, the model of the layperson doesn't fit. We're, we're, we're not interested in being the cheerleaders for the, you know, <laughs> the athletes on the field who are the monks. You know, we, we want to do it ourselves. And um, so we're, we want to do the retreats, we want to do the home practice and the study and so forth ourselves. So it's very different. In Tibet, this happened too. You had the Nakpas we mentioned earlier, you know, lay people who were not monks who were dedicated to the practice, known by the community. They also had their own dress. They were, uh, you know, observable, identifiable within the Tibetan culture, and this is one of the things we don't have. Christianity has this issue as well. You know, if you're an Episcopal priest or a Catholic priest, you wear, you know, distinguishable robes, but most Protestants don't have any method of distinguishing a preacher from anybody else. 
and uh, we have this sort of issue in the West. A lot of people call it llamas. You know, people Westerners who've done three-year retreat, sometimes their their masters, their Tibet masters, will say, "Well, you should wear some distinctive garb," but it doesn't really work too well. Go uh-huh. around in robes as a layperson going to your job at the so-and-so corporation or whatever it is. So, most of the three-year retreats don't do this. There's no visual way of distinguishing them. And monasticism, that doesn't seem to be something that's having deep roots here. I mean, there are Westerners who are taking monastic vows, but I wonder how that's going to play out. And that certainly relates to the whole whole issue of, will we just be lay practitioners supporting monastics when we don't really have that? It seems like we're more leaning to some kind of combination of a lay yogin, forced, part-time forced uh, renunciate of sorts. Well, life is so complex for the Westerners. You know, just right. having households that have interior plumbing, and, right. <laughs> you know, cable systems and telephone systems, and and the cost of just having a household is is much harder here. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's more. It's more difficult to have a simple life. At least we think it is. Uh-huh. You know. In terms of the monastic thing, it's it has been the case that monasticism has been the repository of Buddhism and uh, you know that which has transmitted it and kept it alive for in a major portion throughout its history. So um, it's my own uh, feeling and, and hope that the monastic tradition itself does uh, continue in the West and that. Um, it contribute to the development of Buddhism in the West. Mm-hmm. You have people, who, you know, it gives you the wherewithal to uh, really devote yourself to promoting, studying, practicing, right. and teaching. So you would hope that it could produce people who would really um, support the spread and maturing of Buddhism. Um, that said, uh, it seems unlikely that it'll be anywhere near as important as it was in Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there are difficulties. You know, the monastics, they, they, there is a tendency for them to not stick with it. Um, and I think there's a lot of misunderstanding. You know, Dempala, Chari Dempa Geltsin, Chari Lama Dempa Geltsin, he's done his three-year retreat as well as uh, finishing Shadra at Rumtek Monastery, um, talks about renunciation as uh, it's not a, a, a sort of denial of something for oneself. You know, it's like it's not this hardship that you're denying this thing you deeply want. The, the example he gave was, you know, if you're a kid, you may be fixated on your toys, but when you grow up, you, you stop having interest in the toys. It's not like a big uh, painful thing to not play with your toys anymore. <laughs> you, you just don't play with the action figures anymore, you know, or whatever it is. You just don't do it. You don't. It's not this big denial that you've grown out of it. So there's a quality that there's an understanding of renunciation that's um, more of a mature uh, thing, where you you're drawn to do something rather than you're painfully not doing something. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think there's a way in which we could understand monasticism in a much more mature way than we do now. One thing I've noticed is that Western practitioners take up yearly retreats. They'll go on a month retreat every Mm -hmm. year. Mm -hmm. They'll maybe go study, for example, in Natarta and do um, study Shedra. Mm -hmm. For a month. Yeah, for a month. And so that seems to be a pretty important part of Western Buddhist practice. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts about that? aspect of practice or that version of a practitioner? Well, you know, Kempotsuchum Gyamsa Rinpoche is not, apparently, I, I haven't heard this directly myself, but I've heard this through students of his, that he's not that uh, keen on three-year retreat. Uh-huh. He's keen on intensive retreat practices, like go go do your month, go do three months, uh-huh. but um, come out and, you know, have a life and, and deal with the regular world, you know, deal with conduct at the ordinary level. Um, 
so there's some idea of really having this intent, motivation, and aspiration to practice and transform oneself, one state of mind. And um, but uh, the results of three-year retreat are quite mixed. I would I would say um, that you know a good number of people have gone in and out now, and and it's not like they're suddenly enlightened. Um, from doing that. It's not an end-all and be-all. And in fact, it's become clear that in the Tibetan culture, three retreat would, in, would, it was like professional training, that you became a ritual specialist that knew how to do all these different things, and then you could actually make a livelihood if you were, you know, suitably talented at it and had the motivation or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. that you had a role in Tibetan society, that you could do ritual things to benefit people according to the you know, uh, if someone's sick, going to do practices for them or something like that. And then there's a whole cultural side to that. And do Westerners uh, believe in such practice? Right. You know, there's a whole separate thing. So there's this whole dimension to the background of three-year retreat in this Tibetan culture that doesn't seem applicable to us. Uh-huh. We view it as a personal transformation. You know, it's a, it's a space where you intensively work on transforming yourself right. and uprooting your neurosis and, you know, um, discovering, un, unveiling your wisdom and compassion and so forth. And in some ways, we're a bit idealistic about about the three-year practice compared to how it actually functioned in the Tibet, which isn't to say that the Tibetans didn't use it that way, didn't relate to it that way, you know, right. as a personal transformative thing either. But dimensions, yeah. Yeah, other cultural, economic dimensions, social dimensions uh-huh. and status and stuff mm-hmm. that are less, less at play for us. Now, it's not that we won't develop those dimensions. Yeah. In fact, there's a whole issue about how can people who are really devoted to Buddhism make a, li- a livelihood. Right. Tibetan culture produced ways of doing that. Mm-hmm. You know, whether you're a village ritualist or um, you're a famous teacher and, and realized person who gets students, whether you're a lay person or monastic or whatever, there was a culture of giving and supplicating and right. you know paying for teachings and stuff like this, which we don't have. And, right. Um, you know, uh, a, you know, myself being a professor at a university, get paid to teach Buddhism is a really rare thing to be able to do that. And other people uh, trying to develop themselves as teachers. There are not that many Surya Dasas in the world, right? right. Or Reggie, Reggie Ray is himself in this transition now too. And and we absolutely need Westerners to become teachers. Yes. You know, and and that's not saying you know one person's great or not. I mean, it's not even a statement about whether some you know individual should be doing it or not. It's just we need it to be done. So from that point of view, the Surya Dasas and this controversies about his lineage and Reggie and this controversies about him breaking from the right. Sakya and stuff like this. So there's all those things, and this happened in Tibet too. Uh, Tartang Tuku is not a Tuku. He named himself a Tuku. He's got a really interesting history. I, I knew someone, was a Tibetan, who. He was in um, Sarnath, and he decided to get married. And he invited all these different monasteries, and he said he was, you know, was they were going to do prayers and pujas. Didn't tell him he was getting married. <laughs> and then suddenly they find all these monks are there. They think they're doing this sort of, you know, meritorious puja, reciting all these texts and stuff. And he's funding it and all this stuff. And the next thing they know, she's up there in front of him getting married, and, and then they're being photographed with all the monks, as if the monks were, were, you know, all coming there for the marriage. <laughs> you know, so he's got a very unconventional life. I'm not. I'm not 
you know, sort of judging anything, right. just describing it here. You know. And he declared himself a Tukul. He was trying to get, I heard through again through Tibetans, that he was supplicating to be recognized as a Tukul, and it never happened. So he just started calling himself a Tukul, and it comes to the West. And again, he's done, you know, he's published all sorts of texts. He's given to monasteries all over Asia major texts. You know, <laughs> is he a Tukul? Well, you know, I don't know, but... Um, so there's a lot of just unusual lineages. You know, they, um, the Dunhuang Caves, where they opened up these caves at the end of the uh, Silk Route journey over, you know, goes over the, from India over the north of Tibet and through the deserts north of the Himalayas, and it ends up in China, the Silk Route. It's, um, there's this famous town at the eastern end, the Chinese end, where these the two, the southern and northern routes, so there's a, one going over the top of the desert and one going over the bottom of the desert, and they connect back at Dunhuang close to India, so a very powerful city economically, and there were monasteries there, and they, they sealed all these caves up with sacred trash, someone has called it. You know, the books would get worn out, the texts would get worn out, and they, they stuffed them in these caves, and they sealed them. It's a desert. They're still there, you know. They've survived. Well, some of them are Chinese, different languages, Tibetan, all this stuff. And they have some early Chan records, and they do not agree with the lineage records that the later Chan tradition thinks is their lineage. Mm. So there's this whole controversy now right. that it doesn't seem like the the lineages that, that the you know modern li- you know, lines that have survived claim to have gone back. These early sources don't collaborate. That they're, they're, some of the figures are not in there at all. So this issue of what's a legitimate lineage is, in some ways, it's uh, it's a red herring. It's a way because the tradition is always it's not that linear necessarily. Right. You see, so if someone like Reggie wants to say I'm ready to be a teacher, uh-huh. and he hasn't had the Sakyang say yes you are or Trangu Rinpoche say yes you are, uh-huh. well, that's somewhat how this goes. <laughs> It's interesting. Yeah, and it's not to say, I mean, Reggie's thing might flourish 100 years from now. He may be the, you know, and the Shambhala may disappear. Who knows? Right. I'm not I'm not arguing for any of it. I'm just describing just, it. Right. And it may die out. You know, Reggie, who's Reggie? You know, 100 years from now. You, you just never know where, how it flourishes. Right. So things are, it's more, much more of a wild west than, than we think. <laughs> this has been a presentation of BuddhistGeeks.com, copyright 2007. Music in this podcast provided by C for Chaos. For more great music and writing, visit his blog at www.cforchaos.com. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners 
who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.